Did you know that a kilometer of activity can make a difference in the lives of people living with diabetes? Join Diabetes Canada's Lace Up to End Diabetes activity fundraiser and do your 10K your way. You choose the movement and set your pace to reach the goal of 10 kilometers or more by the end of September. Every dollar raised goes to support education, services, advocacy, and diabetes research that may lead to the next medical breakthrough. Registration is open now. Visit diabetes.ca slash LASAP or call 1-800-BANTING to register. Let's lace up and end diabetes. Hormones in the intestine have proven to play an important role in managing type 2 diabetes, as well as regulating growth and function of the beta cell and the intestinal tract. But what does all of that mean for someone living with the condition? I'm Krista Lamb, and today on the Diabetes Canada podcast, I'll be talking to Dr. Patricia Brubaker about her work with glucagon-like peptides. Dr. Brubaker is a professor in the Department of Physiology at the University of Toronto and a Canada Research Chair in Vascular and Metabolic Biology. She's also the 2020 winner of the Diabetes Canada Lifetime Achievement Award for her outstanding contribution to diabetes research. Welcome to the show, Dr. Brubaker. Thank you so much for inviting me to speak today, Krista. I'm delighted to be here. Well, first of all, I wanted to say how happy I am to have you here because it's great to finally have the chance to have a conversation with you because so many of the people we've had as guests on the show have had you as a mentor or have been inspired by your work. So I'm very excited to chat with you about that. Wonderful. So first of all, you do a lot of work with glucagon-like peptides, which are GLP-1 or GLP-2, and people with type 2 diabetes may actually be taking a medication that is GLP-1 or GLP-2 related, but a lot of our listeners won't be familiar with what that means. So could you tell us a little bit about your work? Certainly. So GLP, or glucagon-like peptide, comes in two forms, named 1 and 2. And these are basically hormones that are produced by your intestinal tract that are released into the bloodstream every time you eat a meal. And so GLP-1 is really your body's natural anti-diabetic hormone. When you eat a meal and you release GLP-1 into the blood, it stimulates insulin secretion. So that helps you dispose of the nutrients that you've just taken in in your meal. It also has a number of other beneficial effects in the treatment, particularly of type 2 diabetes. Most notably, it causes a feeling of satiety or a feeling of fullness, and it decreases your hunger. So GLP-1 is a hugely advantageous hormone to use in patients with type 2 diabetes because of its twofold actions, stimulating insulin secretion and Interestingly enough, it does this in a safe way. So it lowers your blood sugar levels to normal, but it doesn't lower it to below normal levels, hypoglycemia. So GLP-1 is very safe in that regard. And at the same time, it reduces body weight in patients, Uh, body weight or excess body weight being a contributor to insulin resistance, which is one of the problems in patients with type 2 diabetes. And a lot of people now are taking medications that are based on GLP-1 or GLP-2. And are you working on improving those therapies or doing work to better understand the ways that we could use GLP-1? Can you tell me a little bit about that? So patients with diabetes 
take GOP-1 related therapies. In fact, they don't take therapies related to GOP-2. And very specifically, GLP-2 stimulates intestinal growth. So people who have an insufficient amount of intestine to eat nutrients will take GLP-2. But patients with type 2 diabetes take GLP-1-based therapies. So in my laboratory, we're very interested in the factors that control the secretion of GLP-1 from our intestines in a normal physiological setting and then also in the setting of models of type 2 diabetes. We've had a long-standing interest in how GOP-1 is released into the body because of its anti-diabetic effects. And we studied this extensively over the past 35 years. But most interesting is the recent studies that we've been doing where we've uncovered sort of a novel pathway to GOP-1 secretion. And that's a pathway that mimics your natural day-night biological rhythms. It's called your circadian rhythm. And the way that this pathway works in animal models, and it seems also in humans, is related to our timing of food intake. So in the normal 24-hour cycle, we have daytime when we eat food and we are active, and we have nighttime when we sleep and we are not eating. And it turns out that if you eat during the daylight hours, you get a really big stimulation of GOP-1 so that it can help release insulin and deposit the nutrients that you've just eaten. If you eat during the nighttime when you're not technically supposed to be eating, your release of GOP-1 is not as good. It's not as big. And therefore, you don't get as much insulin released and the nutrients aren't deposited in an appropriate fashion. And so this daytime nighttime cycle of GOP-1 is referred to as a circadian rhythm. And the reason we're particularly interested in this is because people who, for example, conduct shift work are actually at very high risk of developing type 2 diabetes. And that's because people who conduct shift work have a disrupted circadian rhythm. So for example, if they're working nights, they're eating at night, which is not the body's normal time to be eating food. And so disrupting this normal pattern, we believe it pattern in GOP-1 and therefore in insulin actually can contribute to this risk of type 2 diabetes that's seen in shift workers. That's especially interesting because I know a lot of work is being done on Dr. Carolyn Kramer and different people are working on also intermittent fasting and looking again at the circadian rhythms. Is that similar? In, is there a correlation there? That in fact is a similar story with the idea of intermittent fasting and another version of that is time-restricted feeding. And I'm more familiar with the time-restricted feeding, which says you only eat during the time of day when you're supposed to be eating, for an, during an eight-hour window, for example. And time-restricted feeding can improve blood glucose control in individuals. Intermittent fasting, I believe, works on a slightly different principle of actually giving your body a rest from having to release all your hormones and deposit your nutrients. So they're related, although they're a little bit different from each other. And if someone living with diabetes was interested if you, and asked you sort of what the end goal of the research that you're doing is, what is it that you're hoping to 
lead to? Is it therapies or is it a new way of thinking about how we eat or both? I would say a little bit of both. Uh, so one of the end goals is to just understand the biology of the system. Because if we don't understand the biology of the system and how it works normally, it then becomes difficult to think about therapeutically how we might manipulate that system. And so right now in the clinic, there are long acting drugs that mimic the actions of GOP-1. And so those drugs provide GOP-1 at sort of a constant level over the entire day and night. And that doesn't mimic normal physiology because normally your GOP-1 levels would be lower at night when you're not eating. So we wanna know if that's an issue, it might not be, but it might actually be better to promote GLP-1 release during the day when you normally are eating as compared to the night. So the second current therapeutic family that's used in the treatment of type 2 diabetes is factors that prevent the degradation of your body's own GLP-1. These are called dipeptidyl peptidase 4 or DP4 inhibitors. And so those drugs rely on the normal pattern of GLP-1 secretion so that GLP-1 is going up as appropriate when you're eating, but then it allows that GLP-1 to stay in your bloodstream longer. So our hope in terms of understanding the uh, circadian rhythms of GLP-1 secretion and the factors that control the cell that makes GLP-1 is that we could hopefully develop a new or third approach to type 2 diabetes therapy based on GLP-1. And the idea is that you would take something that would stimulate your body's own production of GLP-1 at the same time as you're preventing its degradation. And so that you might get a more effective therapeutic out of the combining of those two approaches of stimulation and protection of the GLP-1 that your body makes naturally, but also harnessing that rhythm of the normal sort of on-off production of GOP-1. Which I think is really interesting, and especially for anybody who is at risk of type 2 or living with prediabetes or who has type 2 diabetes in terms of their management. And I wanted to switch gears just a little bit because I think one of the things about, you know, this uh, past year, you were the Lifetime Achievement Award winner for Diabetes Canada, which was wonderful and congratulations. Very, very long time in coming, I have to say, because I think that you are one of the most inspiring women in diabetes research that I have ever encountered. So I was very pleased to see you get that award. But I wanted to talk a little about what inspired you to get into diabetes research. And I think I probably know the answer, but I would love to hear it from you. So first of all, thank you for those really kind words. I, I was just uh, delighted and really honored to win the Lifetime Achievement Award from Diabetes Canada. And in fact, Diabetes Canada was one of my first sponsors when I finished my PhD studies in terms of supporting me in my diabetes career. So it's a, a really nice almost beginning and not quite end of my story to be affiliated with Diabetes Canada. So my journey into diabetes research actually was quite unexpected. And when I conducted my PhD studies at McGill, I was studying hormones, but hormones that were related were related to our stress axis and which had nothing to do with diabetes. And in within my first six months of starting my PhD studies, I quite unexpectedly developed type 1 diabetes myself. 
There was no family history. This was just something that happened to me completely out of the blue. And I decided then that when I finished my PhD studies that I'd like to sort of switch my area of focus a little bit away from stress hormones and into hormones that were related to diabetes. And so that was when I was in Montreal. And at that point in time, I learned that uh, Dr. Mladen Vranich at the University of Toronto had a long-standing interest in a hormone that was really quite unknown or, or not understood at that point in time, which was referred to as extra pancreatic glucagon. So I approached him about doing a postdoctoral fellowship in his lab, and he accepted me. Really, I was delighted. He was a giant in the field of diabetes research. And I started to study extra pancreatic glucagon. And as I started to study that, developments in gene cloning in other labs identified that extra pancreatic glucagon, as we thought of it at that point in time, was actually the glucagon-like peptides, GLP-1 and GLP-2. So it was a little bit of serendipity that actually got me into the field of, of GLP-1 and GLP-2, but the move for me into diabetes research was absolutely planned, given my newfound passion for all things diabetes. I think it's so interesting that you ended up working with Dr. Maladin Vranik, because for people who are listening who might not be familiar, he came to Canada to study under Dr. Charles Best of Banting and Best, and he has also had a remarkable impact on another researcher who lives with type 1 diabetes, being Dr. Michael Riddell, who speaks often about his work under Maladin Vranik. So I wonder, is there anything that you learned in that lab in particular that you take with you and, and bring to your own students now? Mladen has trained a lot of people, and absolutely, um, Michael Rydell at York University is one. Uh, there are a number of researchers down at Vanderbilt, for example, as well, who've remained in diabetes research, and, and in fact, researchers around the world. He, he really was a very effective and proficient trainer of good researchers in uh, diabetes. I think the one lesson that I learned from Dr. Vranich was thoughtfulness. And I learned from him that no matter how upset I might be about something, there was always room to sit down and reflect on what the issues were and how they could be resolved. He was a, a giant in terms of scientific curiosity, but he was also very reflective himself. And he loved to ponder questions and tease out both sides of issues that arose. Also, I learned from him was absolutely passionate about music, about film, about travel, and all of these things were, I guess, add-ons to science, but provided mentoring in, I would say, life skills, as well as in laboratory skills that I gained from working with Mladen for three years. And I think that's really wonderful. And I know that, as I mentioned off the top, so many, especially female scientists, have said to me that you have had such an impact on them in terms of your own work as a role model and as a mentor. And I think, I believe you were the first woman to win the Diabetes Canada Lifetime Achievement Award. And I, I think that you have brought so much to the STEM community. And so is there anything that you would say to women starting their career in basic science and science based on your own experiences? 
That's a very interesting question. So there is a saying that I use with my students, uh, which may be appropriate here, which is that if it was easy, your grandmother could do it. And I don't mean to disparage grandmothers. It's not an easy career path. Uh, it, it takes a lot of work, it takes a lot of dedication, unquestionably. I find it to be the most rewarding of careers that I could ever possibly imagine, though. And so I say that to really state outright that it's worth the hard work, right? So it's a career that's filled with the joy of discovery and with the real pleasure of working with young minds who challenge me every single day. And so I'm continually learning new things through my experience with my students. And so those are really the pleasures that to a certain extent make up for the fact that it is not necessarily an easy path. I guess the other words I would say is obtain mentorship and take it where you need it. So I will say that, you know, I've had a number of different mentors in my life. Interestingly enough, in this context, they were all men. And I didn't have any female mentors. I, you know, when I started out, uh, there weren't as many women in science, but I've had some absolutely wonderful mentors pretty much at every stage of my career. And they've taught me different things as I've gone along. One mentor might teach me about how to be a good graduate supervisor. And another mentor would help me figure out how to write grant proposals. A third mentor helped me a lot in thinking about how I wanted to be a teacher in the classroom. So at each step, I had different mentors who provided me with different skills. And what made those mentorship mentor-mentee relationships work was that I personally liked these people and I had a natural affinity and willingness to work with these people to gain the skills that I needed. So I, I think those are a couple of words anyway that relates to what I've learned as I've gone along through my career. That's amazing. And I think very good advice for anyone starting a career in science. And I wanted to sort of circle back to Dr. Michael Riddell because we talked about him a little bit earlier, but you two have recently had a really interesting project that you've been working on for the 100th anniversary of insulin, which is this sort of collection of all of the researchers who are working with type 1 and in the diabetes research community. Can you tell me a little bit about what you wanted to do with that and how it came together? Sure. So I was actually inspired to create this sort of word cloud of researchers by attending your own lecture, Krista. And as I was sitting in front of my computer, you know, some of the words that you said led me to think or to wonder how many people with type 1 diabetes were actually conducting diabetes research. And I know several, um, Michael Rydell, as you mentioned, for example, Bruce Perkins, you know, there, so there are a few people at the University of Toronto, but I knew there had to be more because having diabetes is an inspiration for conducting diabetes research. It's a motivator. So I started sending out emails to a few colleagues saying, do you know someone who has type 1 diabetes who is doing some form of diabetes research? And I had a few names. And then when Michael Riddell got involved, the whole thing literally just exploded. He brought a, an enormous amount of energy to this project. And he also brought his Twitter account. 
which I think was tremendously helpful. So from having just a few names within about, I would say, three weeks, we have a list now that's about 120 names of researchers who have type 1 diabetes who are conducting diabetes research. And, and I thought that was actually pretty amazing. There are some giants in the field that I didn't know had diabetes and many, many, many new investigators who are coming into the discipline, I think, who are similarly motivated to conduct diabetes research. So it's generated a bit of a buzz, if I can use that word, in the community. And people were writing to us and saying, please put me on your list. Uh, it, was, it was a very exciting project. And we hope to wrap it up sometime this summer. And we're thinking about ways that we can sort of release it back to the community so that everyone who's on that list can then use this in their own scientific and public presentations to show the nature of the inspiration that we all get. Yeah, I, I know when I was researching the book, I remember talking to a group of young scientists in British Columbia who had type one. And I mentioned that I work with Dr. Bruce Perkins sometimes, and they were so interested in learning more about that and, and so inspired by a researcher who lived with type one that was doing similar work to what they wanted to do. And so it reminded me that this is so important and that role model aspect is so necessary. So I think it's a really wonderful project. And I know on Twitter, we've all been talking about it because I think it's such a great thing that you guys are doing. Well, thank you. It has been fun. And I will say it has been an, a little bit of a nice break from COVID to generate something that's positive and, and that's bringing a smile to people's faces. Yeah, it definitely has been a wonderful inspiration. So my last question for you is probably one of the more difficult ones that I always try and ask people, but it's one I think that's really important to kind of come full circle with this interview, which is what would you say you're most proud of in your career? You've done so many incredible things, but is there one thing that sticks out in terms of, you know, what you feel really proud of? That's an interesting question. I don't actually think for me, it's all that tough. So in my career, I like to think that I've made a meaningful scientific impact. But what I'm really most proud of is the people that I've trained. And for me, as I've mentioned, these people are a source of inspiration to me every single day. When I look back, I've had nearly 50 graduate students and a dozen postdoctoral fellows. And I think I've trained nearly 200 undergraduate students. And they've all gone on to very different types of careers. They've gone into academia and research. They've gone into industry. They've gone into law and pharmacy and medicine. And I like to think that I've had an impact on their lives that's helped them achieve their goals in life. And I sort of think about them as my extended family, if you will. And I think that's the one big thing that I'm most proud of. Yeah. And I know from speaking to some of them that they feel very much like a family to you. So thank you so much for sharing with us today and for being on the show. It was wonderful to speak with you. So thank you again for joining us. I'm delighted. Thank you. Thank you to Dr. Brubaker for joining us on the show today. I'm Krista Lan, and you've been listening to the Diabetes Canada podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe in the podcast provider of your choice. If you have questions or comments, you can reach Diabetes Canada on our website at diabetes.ca. Thanks for listening.